Uh, my name is Michael Weber, and I'm Deputy Director of the Energy Institute and Co-Director of the Clean Energy Incubator and Associate Professor of Mechanical Engineering here at UT Austin. And I'm the moderator for this panel, which is a state of the grid. And I'm glad you could be here. It's good to see such turnout late in the day on a, on a beautiful Saturday. In the 20th century, the National Academy of Engineering did an assessment of the most important innovation in that century and determined that the grid was the most important advancement of humankind in that century because of what it did for affluence and quality of life and raising people out of poverty and improving the quality of our water and preserving our food and that kind of thing. And they've been asked and people suggested what the next great invention of the 21st century will be. And people suggested that reinventing the grid will be the greatest advancement of the 21st century, that we've already done it once, so we're about to do it again. And by some estimates, there's a trillion to $2 trillion of investment waiting for the grid as it gets reinvented with different elements. And what that means is not obvious. So we, we have a panel to talk about that. And it makes sense to have this discussion in Texas because there are three grids in America, East, West, and Texas. We have our own grid, we have our own islands, essentially, and we can talk about what that means as we advance into the future. We've got a great panel, a great lineup here today. I'll go through a quick introduction of who they are. They'll each make some comments. We'll have some question and answer up here, and then we'll have time for the audience to ask your questions as well. Uh, to my immediate left, uh, looking to your right, is Chris Eugster, Group Executive Vice President and Chief Generation and Strategy Officer at CPS Energy in San Antonio. Uh, next is Bill Bagnus, who's listed here as Senior Vice President and General Counsel at ERCOT, but has been announced as a CEO designate or CEO in waiting or something like that for ERCOT. He'll be the head guy at ERCOT uh, shortly, which you said is January 1st. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Next, we have Donna Nelson, the Chairwoman of the Public Utility Commission here in Texas, a very important policymaker and decision maker for the state of Texas around electricity and the grid, among other things. And I think this is our third panel together at Texas Tribune Fest or something like that. We, we're often on panels together, it seems like. And then Bob Shepard at the end, CEO of Encore. Encore has been in the news a lot over the last couple of years for some of their big announcements around new technologies and different investment decisions that they think will help make the grid better. So we've got a really fantastic panel, a lot of insights, a lot of collective experience and wisdom that we can learn from as we discuss what's going to happen with the state of the grid. And Chris, let's start with you. Okay. First of all, thanks for having us here. Yeah. Uh, quick intro to CPS Energy. We're the nation's largest municipally owned gas and electric utility. Uh, we have a diverse uh, fuel mix. We have nuclear, coal, gas, uh, renewable solar, wind. We, we basically own the grid in San Antonio. We serve the San Antonio uh, retail customer. Um, a couple things I would like to kind of talk about the state of the grid. The grid has, has, has had an amazing, uh, you know, service to customers over the last 100-plus years. I mean, there's a uh, reliability standard of one event every 10 years that the grid can have some issue with it. That's a pretty high standard. And so it's served our customers very, very well over the past 100 plus years. Hasn't changed much over the past, past 10, 100 years. You're still talking about building big power plants, you know, plugging it into the grid and basically flowing uh, power to customers and basically sending them a bill once a, once a month. Um, I think in this world of, of renewables, uh, electric vehicles coming online, I think the grid is able to kind of handle that, and we've seen that at CPS Energy. We have, we're a leader in solar. We have over 200 megawatts of solar deployed. Uh, we have an active rooftop program. We're going to start to step into that space, into the rooftop uh, space as a utility. Um, we, we've got a large energy efficiency demand response program, and we have found that the grid can handle that kind of uh, technology innovation at, at the levels that they are in. Looking forward, though, in tomorrow's world, um, you know, the, the grid really is, you know, inadequate to kind of serve multiple technologies coming in at kind of scale. So when people start to put generation on there, when we see a lot of generation going on 
at, at homes and businesses, people putting on rooftop solar, people plugging in electric vehicles, people you know, uh, uh, coming up with new appliances in their homes and businesses. You know, it's going to cause issues for the grid, and we've got to figure out how to create a smart grid where we're putting a lot more uh, intelligence into that grid and enabling kind of flow of power you know, in two-way directions, not in a single direction, being able to meter power in a much more real-time basis versus kind of once a month so that we can support a lot of these technologies that are coming into the grid. So right now, you know, I think we're in a good place, but if you look five, ten years down the road, we've got to put a lot more investment into the delivery side of the business to make sure that we can uh, support all the exciting technologies that are coming down the pike. Great, great comments. And I'll say, I was just in Minnesota two days ago giving a speech at the Southern Minnesota Municipal Power Agency, a collection of 18 utilities, and they were saying, we need examples of municipal utilities that have really looked to the future and figured out how to make it work, and CPS came up as an example that this is a utility that we should really follow as an example. So you're doing great work in San Antonio, and I know we'll have several questions for you after that. Uh, Bill, what are your comments Excellent. from your perspective? I appreciate it, and uh, I, <clears throat> since we have the state of the grid, I looked up uh, you know, the state of the union and what does the president usually say? We, we only have five minutes. And the president always says, the State of the Union is strong. Yeah. Uh, well, I can say the State of the Grid is strong. Uh, and I think in Texas there is data to back that up. I think the, the uh, uh, performance scores that uh, ERCOT uh, monitors and is uh, judged by and that other utilities in Texas are, uh, by those measures we are doing very well. And part of the reason why we're doing very well is some of the changes that we're seeing in technology that give us better awareness of what's going on on the grid. They give all the utilities uh, that are in the ERCOT region a better ability to, to see and, and know how to make changes quickly uh, to make sure the grid is reliable. Uh, and ERCOT, uh, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, uh, is, we're responsible for the, the flow of electricity, managing the flow of electricity to about 90% of the people in Texas, around 24 million Texans. 75% of the land mass of Texas, uh, and we are, as Michael said, uh, an independent interconnect uh, in the United States, uh, separate from the eastern and the western interconnect. So a very unique situation we have in ERCOT. But in addition to, to uh, strong, the state of the grid, and Chris referred to this in, in several aspects, the main state of the grid is changing. Uh, the electric grid is a phenomenal achievement. Uh, I, I think air conditioning ranks a close second uh, but, of course, that relies on the electric grid uh, as far as achievements of the 20th century. Uh, but the electric grid is changing in several ways, and it, a lot of it has to do with the things that make the electric grid strong. Uh, the ability to deploy advanced technologies, like we're seeing all over the economy, have given, te and Texas has led the way in this, in a sense, we have 6.8 million meters that are smart meters. Uh, about 98% of the load of the, of the, the Texas uh, demand is uh, metered and settled in 15-minute increments, you know, which is amazing, uh, considering where we were not too long ago. So the efficiencies that are allowed by a lot of this data, both in our awareness of the situations facing us and our ability to deliver power effectively and manage the wholesale market effectively, is unprecedented. And those changes are, in many ways, facilitated by the way the Texas market has been designed originally by the legislature, as it's been implemented by stakeholders in ERCOT, and by the processes we at ERCOT manage. Uh, the Texas market uh, delivers reliability, and the Texas market dispatches electricity in the most economically efficient way. And that has had tremendous advantages for our ability to attract investment, 
uh, and to continue to provide a reliable system that also relies on markets. In addition to the smart meters, there is retail competition in Texas in a way that we don't see as effectively anywhere else probably in the world. Uh, we're deploying wind resources on the ERCOT grid in a way that is competitive with anywhere in the world. And we're seeing increasing uh, investment in solar and new technologies, as well as a continued vibrancy of uh, other traditional dispatchable technologies on the grid. So we're strong, we're changing, and those changes are going to present challenges for all of us in the industry, uh, ERCOT, regulators, as well as the industry as we go forward into the future. You know, I say, uh, you, you must be hosting delegations from other countries. I know they come through, like from Germany and other parts of the world, to say, how did you do it in Texas? So I, may, I know we'll have a chance later to talk about that, but sure. no, ERCOT's seen as a leader on this in many ways, so it's a chance yeah. for us to perhaps take the lessons from Texas to other parts of the world. Sure. Great. Donna. Hi, thank you. Um, so as, thank you, Michael, and it's great to be here today, um, even though it's very beautiful outside. <laughs> um, as Michael said, my name is Donna Nelson. I'm chairman of the Public Utility Commission. And I guess if I were a doctor, I would say the state of the grid is very healthy. If I were a teacher, I'd probably give it an A+. <laughs> Bill alluded to a little bit of the reasons. If you go back to, I see a lot of familiar people in this audience, but I also see a lot of new faces. So I'm going to step back even a step further. In 1999, the legislature restructured the market. Prior to that, it, they were vertically integrated utilities that were regulated. So they were monopolies granted by government. And um, so regulation was substituting for competitive markets. So in what I think was an act of brilliance, and the reason all markets look to Texas now, is the legislature restructured in 1999 um, and, and required the utilities to unbundle into three separate segments, that being um, generation, transmission and distribution, and the retail side. Um, the reason I say I would give it an A-plus if I were a teacher is because when you look at the generation side, we do have plenty of electricity, and as Bill alluded to, we have a very balanced portfolio. We have more installed wind capacity than any other um, state in the United States, but we also have a healthy fossil fleet. And because we have a competitive market and those generators are bidding into the market in five-minute increments, they um, only get dispatched if their prices are low. And so what's happened over time is older plants are less efficient, more expensive. So over time, our fleet has changed to a very efficient, um, cost-conservative fleet. On the retail side, as Bill alluded to, all customers in the, in the competitive area have smart meters, and they can switch providers in, in like less than half a day. When I started in 2008, it took 45 days. And if you're a retail customer, you can go to our Power to Choose website if you live in the competitive market. Austin is not in the competitive market, and San Antonio is not in the competitive market. But if you live outside of Austin and you can choose, you can choose your provider based on cost or, or um, you know, time of use pricing or whether it's all renewable product. You can choose it pretty much on any factor. Some of them give like airline kind of miles um, rewards. And, and from a transmission and distribution standpoint, that remains regulated. And I think we have the healthiest transmission and distribution infrastructure in the United States. And we brag a lot because we're Texas, but in this case, it's true. <laughs> so now I would say, what is the biggest challenge to the grid? No, one's, no one else has really talked about the biggest challenge except for you know, technology. I think the biggest challenge to the grid right now is the EPA's clean power plan rule. 
Um, as I said, we have invested a lot of money in renewables in Texas, and we've built the infrastructure. So this isn't about clean power and us wanting clean power, because Texans do want clean power. But um, our air is cleaner today than it was in 2000, in spite of the fact that we've had 6,000 new people, 6 million new people move to Texas, and a lot of big industrial customers. So, uh, but the clean power plan, generally the EPA regulates emissions by going to individual power plants or groups of power plants and saying, for instance, with SOX, you have to reduce by a certain amount each unit. This rule, in contrast to every other rule they've ever promulgated, is almost all outside the fence and so dict dictates to Texas what Texas has to do with respect to renewable resources and with respect to how we dispatch our resources. So as Bill alluded to, um, right now ERCOT dispatches from an economic standpoint. If you remember four or five years ago, Congress tried to pass a, um, a, a, tr a, tr a cap and trade uh, and, uh, or carbon tax legislation and they were unsuccessful. Well, the EPA doesn't, doesn't assert, I think, that they have power to force a cap and trade or carbon uh, trading on the United States or on individual states, but they've written the rule in such a way that it backdoors us into the, um, gives us no choice other than to do that. And they've come out with a federal plan that they've pro proposed that if the state doesn't come out with its own plan that follows all of their reasoning, then um, they will force the federal plan on us. And it kind of reminds me of a joke, and it's a fast joke. Which is, um, there was this we, we got time. You can okay. do a long joke if you want. Yeah. There was this farmer, and um, he was an old-fashioned kind of guy. And I'm not saying anything against farmers, because I grew up on a farm. But um, he had his overalls on, and he hitched up his horse to, to the cart, and called his dog, and head up, headed up for town, you know, the big town of 2,000 people, to do a little grocery shopping. And as soon as he got to the first highway, this Lexus came plowing into him. And in the great American tradition, he sued. And um, when he uh, was on the stand, the Lexus driver was cross-examining him, cross him. As an attorney, I have to tell you this kind of a joke. And he said, isn't it true, Mr. Farmer, that at the scene of the accident, you told the police officer you'd never felt better in your whole life? And he said, yes, sir. And so then his attorney gets up on redirect and said, okay, you told the police officer you'd never felt better in your life. Can you tell us why? And he said, uh, yes, sir. He said, I was, I was knocked unconscious by the car, and I came to, and I looked over, and my dog, oh, man, that dog, I love that dog. He was in pain, and the police officer could see he was in pain. So he took his gun out, shot him in the head. Then he examined my horse. My horse was in pain, so he did the same thing. And then he came over to me and said, so how are you feeling? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not going to say EPA has a gun to our head, <laughs> but I will say they're backing us into a certain position. And that's the thing that gives me more concern about the grid than anything else. I look forward to questions. That's great. Yeah, Bob. Thanks. So if you look at where we were in this state um, prior to deregulation, to Donna's point, in 2000, uh, the price of electricity in North Texas was about, was about 9.6 cents a kilowatt hour. So if you go forward 15 years, you can buy a one-year one contract for about 8.5 cents. 
in Texas. So prices are down about 10% in a time when you've had 15 years of inflation and natural gas is substantially higher than it was then. So you gotta say from a consumer standpoint, competition has, has worked pretty well. And during that same time period, because of the, the uh, incentives in, of competition, you've also seen, so seen a dramatic rebuild of our generation fleet in this state. We've seen more generation built in this state than any state in the union. Uh, in addition to <clears throat> state-of-the-art um, low heat rate gas plants and new coal plants, we've built 14,000 megs of wind generation. So we've really repositioned the state there, as well as the two biggest things on the T&D system are the meters and the, and the <coughs> massive build out of the transmission system, which was initially built to support the wind, but will support so many other things. So if you look at what's happened in the last 15 years in Texas, it's really positioned as well. We've got a lot of challenges with the EPA rules and other. And frankly, we're gonna change whether EPA or not, we're gonna start diminishing our use of coal. But we are so much better off than we would have otherwise been, given the progress we've made in terms of rebuilding our system in Texas. Um, and so the um, OCI came out this week with some estimates of what the impact would be of the EPA rules. And I share Donna's view about the EPA, but um, it, the only reason it's not much more dramatic is the strides we've made as a state in, in the interim. We're gonna, we're gonna transition off of coal. EPA will make it faster. We're gonna build, we're gonna build solar, we're gonna build wind, we're gonna have batteries. Uh, we're gonna dramatically change the look of the grid in this state. Uh, but we've built the foundation for that. And so we're, we're gonna be able to make the transition uh, far better than we could have because of the foresight of policymakers in this state that have positioned us well and brought down the price of power for, for consumers. Uh, consumers in this state pay well less than the national average for energy. Um, it, it, there'll be impacts going forward, but I think we're better positioned than we've ever been for, for the changes. That's great, so several comments about EPA, clean power plan, building stuff. And I would say that one comment is in Texas, we're pretty good at building stuff, we get things built. And in general, it feels like nationally we're in an anti-infrastructure mood for whatever reason. But in Texas, we still like infrastructure and building things. And so that, I think, uh, as you said, puts us in a position to tolerate changes and that kind of thing pretty well. And that uh, ability to get things built is an outcome of good policy making and a variety of things. So we've got a lot of things to celebrate, highly functioning markets, good policy making, investments, that kind of thing. So we are better prepared to manage this transition than a lot of other places. I think Texas is upset about clean power plan, but I think there are other states that are even more upset, uh, to be honest. So we- I'm uh, not sure about that. There's some, well, I feel like for in Texas, it looks like a lot of the things that are required to comply with the clean power plan are already happening in Texas, as Bob said, right? There's already transitions in fuel fleet and efficiency and that kind of thing. And some states are not as far along as we are. Is That's my, like uh, I would say, particular states that are more coal dependent, haven't built a natural gas fleet, don't have the infrastructure and that kind of thing. Maybe. I should, instead of, instead of making that statement, ask you, like, do you think we're in better position than other states to manage the transitions with the clean power plan? Do you have any comments on that? I mean, certainly Texas officially is not happy, but do you feel like well, we're, we're the worst off in the state? You just said we're a little better prepared for this. What, how do you think we rank? Well, I think we're, we're, I think it's a double-edged sword. I think we're better prepared in that we have more installed wind capacity than any other state, but we're not getting credit for that. So I think if you look at all the things we've done, like putting in smart meters so we can get demand response from customers, all the things we've done lay the groundwork for that, but we're not given credit. I know that states like Iowa and you know, uh, other states that have a lot of installed wind capacity are also concerned about this. Minnesota, you know, Minnesota politically couldn't be any different than Texas. But you know, when, when, when you look at where we are, and when I look at the hottest day in August of this year, 
um, that we, our demand almost reached 70,000. And we have, ERCOT and the commission and the legislature has been brilliant about how we've worked renewables into the grid in a very thoughtful way. And so, but when you look at August, you know, the wind blows the most in, in it's, most of our wind is in West Texas and the Panhandle, and it blows most in the fall and spring and in the middle of the night. So for instance, and we size the grid to peak demand. We always have, and until we have, you know, a lot of storage, we always will size the grid to peak demand, which means the hottest day in August. So if you look at one of those days in August, the 10th, I think, d demand was close to 70,000. There was only, out of 14,000 megawatts of wind, only 2,000 were online, um, which is about 14%. Uh, the next day, about 1,000 was online, about 7%. So when you look at the capacity factors for wind and how much lower they are, I think our challenge will be making sure we have enough fossil fuels if we're required to double our renewals, renewables to make sure that we do it in the same um, thoughtful way that we've that Texas has done it for the past you know 15 years. Yeah, so CPS yeah. has been all over this. So what, yeah, yeah, what do you I think, think about you that? Know, we we are in a position to comply with the EPA uh, Clean Power Plan with our current strategy. Um, I think Texas has got an issue with the federal government coming in and you know coming up with a one size fits all type type issue, but. But I do think Texas is blessed with its resources, with its leadership, to be on a path towards lower carbon uh, resources. Uh, you know, whether it's our renewables, whether it's the price of natural, you know, post-shale, the price of natural gas at $2.30. I mean, combined cycle natural gas is, is, is more economic than a coal plant. Uh, you know, we had to make a decision whether we wanted to retrofit scrubbers on our Dealey coal units. That would have been a $500 million investment uh, into those two, two coal plants, and we decided not to invest them in those coal plants, but buy a combined cycle natural gas plant. So we, we did a coal to gas switching. We've added renewables, and you know I think there is a path here for Texas. Uh, we need to make sure we get credit for the things we're doing, that we get credit for retiring our coal units. Um, but I, I do think Texas is, has got a path here. Uh, to get there. I say there is a, this widespread concern that early movers won't be properly rewarded in exactly. the system. So in San Antonio, you have the, the coal to gas switch that's happening, and a lot of coal plant owners are considering either retirement or retrofit, and right. you spend $500 million to retrofit or $500 million to buy something else. And, right. and in addition to what you're doing with Dealey and going to natural gas, you're also doing a big push on solar. But it's not just solar generation, it's also solar manufacturing and solar jobs. Can you talk just a little bit about what you're doing with solar in San Antonio? Yeah. You're using that not just as a power generation source, but as a way to foster a whole economic hub that's happening. Right. So one of the things about solar that we like more than wind is it is a lot more reliable. If it's a hot August afternoon, you know solar is going yeah. to show up. Whoever invented solar energy to work uh, during the day is great. Right. That was really smart. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's cool. Um, so, I mean, with wind, you might have a 30-plus percent volatility on kind of what you expect to show up. With solar, it's, it's less than 5%, again, if you know the weather conditions the next day. So we think solar is a much better fit for Texas, uh, even more so than wind, given kind of peak requirements. You know, hot afternoons in August, air conditioners running, the profile matchup there is, is perfect. So we're, we've now shifted more, you know, from looking at uh, expanding our wind resources to expanding our solar resources. We have uh, 400 plus megawatts, and uh, you know, I'm talking a little bit of jargon here, but that, that's the size of a good, good sized power that's plant. That's a lot of solar. That's yeah. a lot of solar. I think Texas, you know, at large has, uh, you know, 
maybe two, 300 megawatts of, of solar. I did, I did a study with an undergraduate student of mine in 2009 to count up all the solar power installed in Texas, including all the rooftop solar panels and all the highway flashers that are solar paneled, six megawatts across the okay. entire state. Okay. As recently <laughs> right. as 2009. Right. And so we're up several orders of magnitude in just a handful right. of years. It's so you know, I thing. think San Antonio is leading that. So you talk about 400 megawatts versus six megawatts. You know, all, almost all the solar that's been done in Texas has been San Antonio. Um, I think that's changing. The price of solar is coming down quite a bit. And I think we're starting to see other utilities illuminate. I think now it's the big solar project. And, and I think ERCOT's seeing a mm -hmm. lot more solar in the, in the queue. I do think solar can make a much bigger difference on, in terms of grid stability, uh, more so than wind. We've taken the added approach to put economic development on our solar project. So if you're going to build a solar farm for us, you got to you got to figure out how to build the the, the tractors here, build the panels here, yeah. here and, and basically support us as partners. You want here. The photons are here. We want the jobs exactly. here too. Why not? Right. So, Especially as a municipally owned utility. Yeah, it makes sense. You can do that in a way other utilities can't. So this means more volatility for the grid. If you have more wind, more solar, plus changing demand. I know ERCOT thinks about volatility and Encore. You think about it with technologies. Can you two talk about what this means for the grid, where you have? Volatility, not just on the demand, but now volatility on the supply, what that means for ERCOT, and then Encore, how you're dealing with that volatility with storage and everything else. Sure. Well, Michael, I think it comes back to one of the points you made earlier about this is an infrastructure business. Uh, we do still like to build infrastructure in Texas, and we've built quite a bit. Uh, but one of the issues that we've raised in, the, in our study of the Clean Power Plan was uh, the time it takes to install the infrastructure that's necessary to bring any new technology, be it solar from Southwest Texas, uh, be it uh, uh, new kinds of generation that may replace what may be going away, it could take five years to build a major transmission line. That's the process uh, from the time it's conceived to the time it actually goes live. So for us, a lot of the concern is around time. Just, is there, just is, how long it takes, yeah. Correct, right, because if the, if the project of implementing uh, a regulatory requirement has a deadline, uh, well, what has to be in the scope of that project is things that are necessary to make it work. And uh, for us, one of the, the key concerns there is making sure that we have sufficient uh, knowledge ahead of time of where that transmission needs to go and then the time to actually get it built and through a case at the PUC and, and online. Uh, so that, that's one issue, certainly, that depending on where the generation shows up, that's going to influence where the transmission needs to be. For example, we made an enormous investment that Bob and others have already referenced in the competitive renewal, renewable energy zones. There are primary lines that go from uh, the cities where the people are and the load is out to, to West Texas where a lot of uh, wind was showing up. Well, uh, as it turns out, uh, much of the utility scale solar, some of the best sites for that are in a different part of Texas that would require an additional build out of some transmission to bring those in. Uh, so those things, again, you know, they've been done, they can be done. Uh, but they do take uh, some time to plan and time to execute, uh, or we will have volatility that is unacceptable as far as running the grid goes. I guess one other issue on the volatility is, uh, you know, currently, you know, we dispatch, as Donna referenced, the most, the most efficient units. If the dispatch stack uh, is required to include a certain amount of renewables in order to meet emission standards, you know, often if we have stability issues, we can still have a whole lot of renewables on the grid but we're able to back those down as we need to to keep the grid stable. Uh, if we end up having some sort of conflict between what we need to meet an emission standard and what we need to keep you know, frequency at 60 hertz, that poses some, some challenges for our operators that 
you know, we haven't had to face. Because having just enough rotational inertia on the grid, having nothing spinning to keep the magnets going, to keep the electricity going at the right frequency. And that might be an issue if we, if we change our fuel mix dramatically too quickly. Sure, and that, that that's, that's yeah. a key issue that our stakeholders and, and ERCOT staff have been discussing a lot already is services we call ancillary services, which are not just the, the, the generation that's producing the megawatts uh, that go over the lines for power, but services that are needed to manage the grid uh, in various circumstances. That's one of the issues that's arisen is if, if the, the uh, nature of the assets that are out on the grid change significantly enough, we may need to have people who are primarily there to provide those sorts of uh, services. So you might have given some of the answer already, which is if we have markets that are highly functional and you have volatility, <laughs> markets like to solve volatility with built-in hedges, sometimes physical <laughs> hedges, sometimes financial instruments. And Encore's talked about that, one of those physical hedges being storage. Can you talk about what yeah. storage means? Yeah, and, and just before I get to that, so some yeah. of these solar contracts, I think, are 45 or $50 a megawatt, which, uh, a megawatt hour, which is, you know, four and a half to five cents. That's dramatically lower than people thought it was going to be just a few years ago. Yeah, it was, I think, 14 cents just like five years ago or something like that. So yeah. it's really come down a lot, and now it's a lot more than natural gas. The, 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 the enemy of renewables is cheap natural gas. It makes it hard to justify it. But when you compare it to clean coal technologies or new nukes, it looks pretty good. It's pretty good. So it's, it's not as nearly as risky, and, and some, the price is much better than it used to be. And so. some people say cheap gas is everybody's enemy. Yeah. <laughs> cheap gas even kills gas, right? It's hard to build yeah. a gas plant yeah. with cheap gas. Yeah. But we need to keep in mind there's still a subsidy. No question There's still it. A, federal sub, a large no, federal subsidy no that goes to solar. So No question. And, and rooftop solar, I think the last quote I heard is you can, you can get quoted about 14 cents a kilowatt hour unsubsidized rooftop solar. Um, and with subsidies, you can bring that down. Now that's you know, it's going crazy in California because 14 cents looks pretty good compared yeah. to utility rates, right? Yeah. So Hawaii, uh, it's yeah. just it's just massively being deployed. So it's it's coming down. It's it's going to be a real key component. So what we did last year with that little study that got a lot of attention, this study we did on on storage. Don and I had a long talk about this. <laughs> she agrees with storage. She just doesn't want me to do it, which is all. No, no. Know. I mean, I mean, it, it, I think it violates the way the legislature no restructured the. Absolutely, the absolutely. It's, if it weren't illegal, it'd be awesome, right? <laughs> so there, there are a lot of awesome <laughs> illegal things. things. No, yeah, but, right, and, yeah. And I think what, what some people missed is 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 I don't care whether the T and D companies do it or not. Our, our point was, this market by 2018, we think storage will be an economic component of the solution. So we think this 70 or 80,000 megawatt market could support 5,000 megawatts of storage as a component of the solution. You'd have to change the law for us to be a part of that. The generators can do it, which is the way it's going, which is fine. Um, but what it says is um, it makes economic sense for, for a component of the solution to be storage because it can, it can, sh it can shave the peaks and it can provide reliability services. Um, we said it would be here by 18. I'll, I'll admit in public I was wrong. It's going to be here by 16. It's earlier, yeah. uh, AES just announced a 20-meg battery on our system. Uh, they're building a 100-megawatt battery in California. Th there is a common belief that storage will be economic up to a limit. You can't support more than a certain amount in the market. But they're going to sell ancillary services into the market with that 20-meg battery, and they're pretty confident they can make money. They're not going to make a $15 or $20 million commitment unless they're confident they'll make money. Storage is coming. We're looking at a number of reliability challenges on our grid. Uh, these, these, uh, these feeders that are commonly have reliability problems and look at the most economic solution, the best economic solutions we're getting are storage solutions where people will come in, oversize it, sell some ancillary services into the market and provide reliability to us. So storage will be a component. The controversy was whether the T&D companies should do it and I don't really care. She'd rather we know it and I'm fine with that. 
but, but it will be economic in this market. It's, a, it's an industry that is, that is inherently inefficient. Our best assets run half the time. So it's, it's crazy not to assume storage will be a part of that if you can get the, the price down. The lithium-ion batteries, there may be new technologies after that. If you look at the car manufacturers, look at Toyota's predictions about the price of car batteries, it's the same technology. They're predicting prices that in our industry would equate to economic storage in the next two to three years. I think it's an important point. So I'm a technology enthusiast as an engineer, and I do think that there are a lot of technological pathways that will cut costs sooner than people expect and might solve a lot of these problems. But it's not just the technology alone. Technology is a big piece of it, and, and I'm very excited about the technologies, the price drops in solar, the price drops in wind, the price drops in natural gas because of the technology of fracking, the price drops in batteries are all very interesting and good for us. But it's also having a highly functional market and having smart policies that allow all of it. And you, you touched on this, Bill, a little bit. The, the ERCOT market, there's the market people know about the price for electricity. You mentioned there are other markets. There are several other markets. There's the markets in the backup power and the firming power and the fast response power and that kind of thing. So I, I say the volatility doesn't make me nervous. Let's build a market, put a price of volatility. Someone will make money reducing the volatility. Do you think that we can just keep adding in more layers of markets? Can we solve some of these problems with the forecasting on wind or solar? We already have forecasting problems on demand. Mm -hmm. Can we add in more market signals to couple with the technology and the policies? Can we get there that way? Do we have too many markets as it is? Do we have enough? Like, do, what do you see the market development being with that landscape? Uh, well, I think um, there are certainly discussions already going on in our stakeholder process, as I mentioned, around ancillary services. And, what that and might, those are the backup services. The backup everyone, services. Yeah. And, and what that may look like in the future. Um, there, there's a suite of ancillary services now. They've been the same for around 15 years since the market opened. And, and as we see uh, additional intermittent resources, the volatility that brings, there's a lot of discussion about should we shift or, or change some of those to meet those new needs. So that, those discussions are certainly going on already. Uh, the commission has done a lot of work on market design adjustments over the past few years. Uh, with the operating reserve demand curve, mm -hmm. and is still talking about other other adjustments and changes we can make. Uh, so, fr from that perspective, I tell you know the brand new engineers who come to work at ERCOT, your career is never going to see this stable. Yeah, uh, it's going to continue to change and adjust because there's just so much happening uh, uh, in the system and with the technology. So, uh, I think we're we're continuing to adjust and try to to meet those challenges as they come, and. Uh, I think there'll also be just ongoing discussions, primarily led by the commission and the legislature, about is the market design as we have it still functioning in a way that delivers everything uh, Texas needs it to deliver. I tend to be much more optimistic. I think I'm much less concerned than you mm -hmm. are that, well, yeah, we'll have volatility on the supply and the demand mm -hmm. side. We've got the unknown of the environmental regulations, but we've got a lot of really cheap photons, cheap wind and mm -hmm. cheap gas, good technology, smart market design. We'll probably figure it out. That tends to be my attitude. The concern is if we don't, the lights go out. That's pretty expensive. Yeah, we don't We've like that. We've had that happen every once in a while. Yeah, we're down on that. Um, so, yeah, we're down. <laughs> well, ERCOT is officially against blackouts. So I just, uh, well, you, yeah. you heard it here first. And I think, yeah. I think uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, the, uh, especially the engineers uh, who do most of the work at ERCOT are optimistic by nature and are problem solvers by nature. I think we, we take uh, the policy decisions and implement them. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's what we'll continue to do. And so I think as indicated in our study of Clean Power Plan, Here's how we see it working. It presents various challenges that need to be met, uh, but you know we'll find a way, and I think we'll continue to find a way because what we do, all of us, is too important not to. Yeah, Chris, make a comment and then Donna. Just yeah. yeah, real quick. I mean, I, I I agree with kind of your philosophy, but we figured it, we, we will figure it out. Has some risk to it. I mean, of course. Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, I'll just give you an example. So you know, we're seeing a lot more cycling on our plants. Our coal plants are now cycling a lot. In the old days, you run a coal plant base load, 80%. It's on on at night, on during the day, 
Now we'll go to men load at night because there's a lot, a lot of wind in Texas. So that's going to cause more maintenance, more reliability issues on the traditional plants, yeah. which you know adds risk mm -hmm. to the to the grid itself. It's risk so, or cost. It's bad for yeah, the scrubbers cost, too. Scrubbers. That kind of thing. So yeah. I mean, there there is this figured out stuff, but there is risk associated yeah. with that. Sure, my daughter is 16, she's learning how to drive. I'm sure she'll figure it out. <laughs> well, There's a little bit of risk, I guess, along the way. Yeah, well, and the truth is, we can figure anything out. It's all about cost, right? And balancing what people are willing to pay. Because if you, in the example I gave where wind was there at 7% and 14% of capacity, if you just build a whole bunch of natural gas plants and just leave them sitting there all the time, you can deal with those issues with respect to wind. Now that won't happen in our market because generators are only paid when they're generating, so there are some inherent conflicts. And when you're talking about building transmission, I just want everybody to be, remember that our ratepayers have invested $7 billion in building those transmission lines for wind. So we've made a huge investment on renewables. It's not like Texas has been sitting back and doing right. nothing. We're but, ahead of the curve. I'd but say. but yeah. when we do need to build other transmission lines for solar or because of coal plants shut down, um, those will be costs that will be borne by customers. And I would further note that with respect to this rule, what's different than every other rule that the in addition to what I said earlier, then every other rule the EPA has put in place, every other rule lets the plants, the plants that are in place at the time are paid for by customers in vertically integrated markets. And, and, and they have a certain lifespan. So a coal plant's like 60 years. And, and the previous EPA rules let those plants live out their useful life. This rule does not, and it cuts coal plants off that maybe have 30 more years of useful life and and uh, the investments that have been made are lost In Texas well. or you mean nationally? Well, everywhere. Right. I mean, if a coal plant has to close, I mean, in Texas, in the ERCOT market, it's the owner who loses the money. But as a society, we lose that resource is, is what I'm saying. And so um, I think there's a cost to that. And we have areas in Texas that are still... Um, regulated outside of ERCOT, and in those areas, you know, if EPA has been really clear about it that they want coal plants to close, so there will be coal plants that will close, and there's a cost to that, and I just think we have to acknowledge that. Uh, yeah, the it, it doesn't look good for coal. Although I would say that at 1970s unscrubbed coal certainly doesn't have a bright future under the EPA plan, but well, there's but some suggestion that. Modern, clean, scrubbed, uh, dry-cooled coal plants certainly have a future within it. So the, the versions we have out there right now certainly don't comply. I think well, I mean, doesn't look good. Well, I mean, a lot yeah. of the plants you're referencing, though, are close yeah. to the end of your, their loose, useful life. Right. And I'm, I wasn't really talking about those. Okay. Um, I, I want to ask one more question and open up for the audience for questions and insults, if you have them. <laughs> the, uh, the, the rise of big data and analytics and smart sensors and cheap computing we have more information available than we used to at the generator side, the transmission side, the retail side. Consumers now know what they're doing. And uh, there's a lot of discussion that big data, the rise of analytics will help us. Do you, what do you think about that? They, we have an increasing information intensity of energy. Are we able to use that to help solve some of these problems? What does it mean for us? Is that going to drive up the cost for software and meters? Or is that going to save costs? What, all of you have a slightly different view on that. What do you think about data and meters and analytics? How is that going to integrate into this problem? If you look at the, at the grid, um, the, the grid itself in the U.S. has been underinvested for the last 60 years. Now, we've done CREs and meters mm -hmm. in this state, but generally speaking, we spent the last 
three or four decades focused on the generation end of the, of the equation. And we've not invested in the grid. Now we nationally recognize the need to invest in the grid. And we have those technologies today, microprocessing and telecommunications. They're going to allow us to do things in the next 10 years. We couldn't have done the last 20 anyway. So we're going to build a grid far more functional and smarter than, than we ever thought we could build so that we can detect problems, diagnose problems, predict problems, isolate outages. We can improve reliability 30 40% with, with fairly modest investments. So it's really a kind of a cool time in, in, in our business. We're going to build so much smarter grid. We used to have to drive trucks around, and we'd ask people to turn their porch light on so we'd know if their power was on after yeah. a storm. We know exactly whose power is out when it goes out. Oftentimes, we'll know your power is out and go restore it before you ever knew you had an outage. You're at work or wherever you are. Yeah, so the, so the uptime, like the, the downtime is very short now, right? You can go solve it before. Yeah. yeah and, it used to take hours, now it's minutes. And now you have an, a fault that will, that will cascade across an entire region where we can, with automatic switches that talk to each other, we can isolate it to 10 homes and then immediately have a, know exactly where to go to re repair it. So you can dramatically improve the performance of the grid in addition to allowing the two-way flows and all the stuff that consumers going to drive, which we haven't talked about, everything from microgrids to self-generation to electric vehicles. So we really are going to have a technology explosion on the grid that we couldn't have had before. Yeah, the great thing about data is you can turn it into information. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it, they're, it they're, then potentially even make good decisions. Right. Yeah. There are yeah. you know, screens that our operators are looking at that they couldn't have been seeing a few years ago because of the flow of data and the ability to turn that into something useful uh, that, that shows them the kind of things Bob is talking about uh, that allows them to make decisions more quickly with, with so much better information. So there's no question, you're sort of behind the curtain, you know, that folks don't see quite as much. Uh, that's making a tremendous difference already. All the, and we're making... You know, the biggest investments ERCOT has to make now is in information technology, yeah. and we have to continue to do that. And you have to hire to those people, ahead. too, right? That means a oh, different workforce for absolutely. you, I guess, right? I mean, we have a, yeah. you know, our IT staff is as, as big as our operations staff at this point, uh, and it needs to be. So those investments continue to be made, but, but I think on the, the uh, consumer side, you know, we're seeing retail electric providers, particularly <laughs> in Texas, using uh, the data streams they're getting to competitive advantage, uh, to distinguish themselves from others by being able to offer consumers uh, a better view into something that's meaningful to them. You know, uh, and, and that's gonna be, as Donna said about retail mm -hmm. offers, that's gonna be different for different people. But the analytics that's gonna be available to people uh, from their providers uh, through these data streams from the smart meters is, is gonna open up things that we probably aren't quite sure what they are yet, uh, but the people who are out there in the business are working on them already. Well, and, and so what that means is, you know, we can meet demand either by generating electricity or by having people back off. And the beauty of our market is that if you're a customer and you live in the competitive area and you want to see you, you want to see those fossil fuel plants closed, you can sign up for plans where you agree to be backed off at certain times of the day. And you're paid for that. Usually yeah. you're paid for it. Yeah. So Actually, and just I mean, we're investing a lot in data analytics as well. I think we've seen a lot of it on the customer side because they're, you know, whether it's pricing plans in the competitive markets or new products and services because there's kind of an immediate feedback and you're trying to kind of uh, win over the customer. I think the biggest challenge for utilities is on, the, on our side of the business. You know, with all this data we've got, how do we use it to take costs out of our business model? Because yeah. like, you know, we've got huge efficiency opportunities and we don't want to be just hiring more people, putting more technology out there and not becoming more efficient. You want, to, you want that to translate to Absolutely. better reliability or lower cost or right. something. So sort of a, a virtuous to, cycle to that, here. To, to that point, yeah. um, we predict right now that we save we're saving about 15 million truck miles a year. 
with no. these advanced with, with telemetry and We don't have to go sensing. out and drive around looking for problems. We know where they are. We don't have to go read a meter. Many times when people call in with an outage, we can look on our computer screen and realize we're hot all the way to the meter. We suggest they go in the, in the garage and flip the breaker. Um, it's 15 million truck miles a year. It's not a minor thing and from a cost standpoint and, and uh, performance for the customer. Their power That'll is restored. That'll be in your next rate case. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's not on the record, by the way. I didn't yeah. say that. <laughs> yeah, stranded assets, all those trucks. But there's sort of a virtuous cycle here where technology enables more data, which enables more sophisticated, nimble markets, which enables more technologies, and it helps each other, which is right. great. Although I'll say as a quick comment, I've, heard, I've told the story in my classes before that I am a believer in data. He said data might yield information, which might yield good decisions, but mm -hmm. data by itself doesn't really cause that. I happen to like Dr. Pepper a lot for a variety of reasons. <laughs> and on the Dr. Pepper can, it tells me exactly how bad for me it is. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't hide it. It says a lot of grams of sugar and sodium, that kind of thing. I drink it anyway. And so the data by itself is not enough to force a good decision. But if I had a price signal on the corn syrup and the obesity that I'm gonna have as a consequence and everything else, and a cultural pressure to change my behavior. Well, so I think good market forces, the price signals, the good technology, the data, then I'll, maybe I'll drink something else like water, but I'm not there yet. So data by itself is not enough. We need all these other layers as well. But maybe you yeah. forgo a cookie. Uh, yeah, well, or just a switch. I don't know, I gotta figure this out. I, I just share my problems publicly, hoping you'll help shame me into better decisions. We got about 10 minutes and we got mics here. So if you have a question, please come to the microphone. And as Russell Gold said in the prior session, uh, no speeches, just questions, please. And if you please tell us who you are with your question as well, that'd be great. We'll start over here, sir. Hi, yes, Al Braden from Austin. Uh, or I'm proud to say we just two days ago uh, signed up and committed to 600 megawatts of solar. Uh, but my question is, you've got a great panel you, here. You mean Austin did, not you. Austin, I yeah, did yeah. not. No, yeah, that'd be, I, wow. from yeah. Austin, yeah. did. Okay, very good. Uh, the big question, this spring, I mean, the holy grail of all of this is storage. and. Uh, Early in the spring, Encore came out and said, we're going to put on five gigawatts of storage. And they got slapped around by the legislature. And uh, I haven't heard what's happened yet. But storage, number one, uh, can happen at many levels. It can happen at, at generation, transmission. It could ha happen locally. So from a technological point, where would you see the best places to dis display or to dis yep. Where should put we put in storage? storage. Yeah. And from a regulation standpoint, what needs to change to let those, maybe it's at all three levels. What, what would have to change to make all of those things possible? Yeah, how do we use storage as a solution? Uh, let let me start there. Uh, the study we did actually said that the state of the ERCOT market could support about 5,000 megs of, of, of storage. Didn't this, wouldn't necessarily us. Um, and we still believe the state can support it. The, the, you, there's a number of schools of thought. If you put it on the distribution system, you can not only uh, peak shave, put power back into the market at peak times, but you can also improve the reliability of the grid. Instead of the power going down, you, you have batteries to kick in. If you put it more close to the central stations, you lose the reliability component, but you probably get an economy of scale of larger batteries. So there's trade-offs and arguments where you put it, but you, I think it'll end up being a variety of those. Uh, but if you put them on the distribution system in a Walmart parking lot, because these are big dipsy dumpster sized batteries, um, uh, retail customers will, will probably pay for that reliability enhancement. And you can also provide power back into the grid to peak shape. So we absolutely agree. Um, AES just announced a 20 megawatt battery at one of our old plant sites in Dallas where they're gonna sell ancillary services into the market. Um, they're, they're, they're building a big 100 megawatt battery in California. And just for scale, like thing. a typical gas turbine might be 20 megawatts. So it's like yeah. instead of a gas turbine, it's there's a, a battery it's now. It's a pretty yeah. decent size. These are lithium ion technology. Um, the, if you look at the 
uh, the progress we're making on that technology, if you compare it to what's happening in cars, you can, you can translate the pricing. There, there, there are many people that are making a big bet on that. GE just announced a billion dollar investment in storage battery technology. So it's, there's a lot of people making big bets on it. It's coming. Uh, I think you'll see it on the grid as part of the solution. But the beauty of our market is um, because generation assets, and that's what storage is, I mean, it can be used on the transmission side, but it's meant really to peak shave mostly. And those assets are in the competitive market, so when it makes economic sense, it will show up in our market. Yeah, yeah the AES deal is happening without right. any law changes. Yeah. It doesn't make any law changes. price. Yeah. Questions. Question over here, sir. Uh, yes, good afternoon. Richard Dayu from El Paso, and unfortunately, we're not in ERCOT, uh, but I didn't, that wasn't my choice. <laughs> Just a very quick question to you, because we really didn't touch on this at all, and that is the security of our grid in terms of all the cyber attacks that are going on across the planet. What are we doing? I guess that's a question directly to ERCOT. Mm -hmm. but what are we doing to ensure uh, as best as possible that we don't have a major failure due to outside influences? Uh, well, from the ERCOT perspective, uh, we as a company uh, spend a lot of time and a lot of resources protecting our assets. Uh, and, and it's really, it's twofold, to put it in the most simple way. A lot of time on prevention, uh, a lot of time on defense, right? And then with the understanding that the best defense may still not stop a cyber attack in the future, making, having a focus on resilience. So understanding if that does uh, penetrate, what is it we're going to do to keep going, to respond? So uh, ERCOT as an entity uh, spends a whole lot of resources to make sure we're in good shape on that, or as good a shape as we can be. Now, there are also federal national standards that are applicable to us and everybody else sitting here uh, that's in the industry on critical infrastructure protection that require a, a level of protection all the way across uh, the industry on cyber assets, critical cyber assets. So it's, it's an area of a whole lot of focus for the industry. And I think, uh, you know, Chris, Bob can speak to, to their companies, but we have uh, a critical infra infrastructure protection working group that meets monthly at ERCOT, includes people from small and large utilities, from the co-ops, from the municipalities, as well as law enforcement, disaster recovery people who are all trying to share best practices and uh, bring the best thinking we can to this. Uh, on both the prevention and the resilience side. We literally have millions of cyber attacks a month. Mm -hmm. Millions of, of attempts to hack into our system. So many of them are just random. Mm -hmm. Domestic, foreign governments. And some of them are actually targeted to try to take down the transmission grid. Um, they would have to go through multiple layers of firewalls. Uh, but they get smarter every day, and so we have to get smarter every day. But we literally get millions a month in attempts to take, get into the, hack into the power grid. In my, my sense is this is a hard subject to talk about because if utilities and grid operators speak too confidently, oh, That's it's right. no problem, it invites more attacks because the hackers That's will right. say, oh, yeah, we'll show you. But if you say, oh, really, we don't have it under control, then people will panic, right? So it's actually a hard subject to talk about publicly to strike that balance between assuring people that yeah. it's safe but yeah. without being overconfident and inviting And, and plus, attack. the more you talk about it, the more attention you draw to it. Right, yeah, it's always a challenge. Uh, question over here. Yeah, uh, my name is James LeBaum in the lobby, and I have a question for Mr. Weber or anybody else with a strong opinion about this, and that is, my question is, where is my superconductivity I was promised 30 years ago? Yeah, it's, uh, did, did, it, is this, did it crawl back into the lab no, or did it go the way of cold fusion? It's with the fusion reactor. It's right next to it. So <laughs> super, superconductivity is here any day now, I guarantee it. Yeah, so I, I'm sure you're following this as well. But it's coming. Question over here. 
Hello, I'm wondering how this conversation uh, relates to the ge geopolitics and uh, American en energy independence and how Texas could play. You'd imagine a vital role in bringing America out of its dependency on Middle East oil. And I'm uh, wondering maybe how these EPA regulations might uh, disrupt that focus, that national focus. Is there, is there, is there some way to balance uh, the clean air wish with uh, maybe the greater priority, which would be our independence? Great question. People don't usually associate the grid with the international energy issues, but is the grid well, becoming more relevant for that? I mean, we are independent from mm -hmm. the standpoint of, because we're an island, we have to be independent. And a lot of the reason our electricity is so inexpensive is because of natural gas prices. You know, natural gas prices at 250 are relate, uh, result in low, because natural gas is used for a lot of our generation, that results in low prices. So, and that, and that kind of uh, illustrates the issue with trying to, other than the fact that there are many operational problems, uh, we do have great resources in solar and wind, but you still need fossil fuel resources to, um, to keep the grid up at this point in time without massive amounts of uh, storage, because it still it goes back to that point I raised earlier about um, the cost of keeping the cost reasonable for customers. Storage is feasible. It's just extremely expensive. And so if your choice is generating electricity from 250 natural gas or storage, um, 250 natural gas makes more sense. So that does allow us, because of, we have a robust natural gas infrastructure, transportation infrastructure that does allow Texas to be uh, self-sufficient uh, and not have to rely on the rest of the United States. The storage economic is driven by the peak pricing mm -hmm. spike. The so swing in price from high to low. If you can take that yeah. peak price down by 5,000 megs, there's a big heat rate drop. And that's really the term storage. So the, way, the amount of storage the market will support depends on how much peak rates, uh, heat rate sensitivity you have at the peak of the market. So storage is more economic in Texas than California, even though they have higher prices, because they don't have the big price differential at the peak. Yeah, so if you're, if you're hedging so the, low to high, so it's, 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 it's really yeah. not necessarily the natural gas, it's that heat rate peak yeah. that, that makes the storage. So that's why we think there is some storage. You know, the, the, on, the, on the national security, though, the common thinking for a long time was don't shut the coal plants, because that puts us more reliant on natural gas. She's right, you can't generate electricity anywhere outside. But if you put more natural gas in our industry, there's less to fuel switch, there's less to compete with, with the imported oil. Was the thing for a long time is keep running your coal. It's better for national security because you can use gas for other things. Yeah. I personally think, given the progress we've that's still true, but the progress we've made in terms of slant drilling and fracking, the supplies of natural gas are pretty abundant in this country. Yeah, yeah. some Chris, of those have uh, ten layers. The, some yes. of the ones in West Texas. Oh yeah. I mean, just a quick. I mean, we are essentially energy independent. I mean, on yeah. the on the oil side, I think we're producing nine million barrels of oil. Uh, you know, on the power side, you know, all the fuel sources to power our our plants. Across the, uh, across the country or kind of here Cold, outside of gas, Hawaii. Nuclear, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. The, uh, the geopolitics of the grid is interesting. The way that showed up was in the 70s when 17% of the power in the United States came from oil in the 1970s. And so when oil supplies cut off, it did threaten the grid. We switched to coal and other sources that were domestic like nuclear. And now the geopolitics of the grid is really more around using electric vehicles to displace oil. So that's where the grid really play yeah, in there. That's right. 
One super quick question, and then we'll have to hang around afterwards to answer the other question, but one quick question here. Yeah, hi, Andrew Martin, a grad student at the LBJ School here at UT. Um, we've talked a lot about how there are some problems with the clean power plant in Texas, and I'd like to hear from just each oh, of the panelists. Oh, a short question. Now, clean power plant. We'll be here 20 minutes. That's fine. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, just yeah. you have very different perspectives, what would be some policy alternatives that would result in similar uh, carbon reductions in a similar time frame? Real quick down the road, instead of the EPA clean power plan, what would you do? I mean, I, again, I'll kind of reiterate my point. I think Texas is on a path anyways, whatever the EPA does. I mean, with gas prices, with the shale play, a combined cycle gas plant is more economical than a coal plant. So you're seeing coal to gas switching because of the market. You're seeing a lot of renewables. So I think there's a path anyways here for Texas. Bill? Uh, I would agree with, with Chris. We're a lot of the way there. I think the, the way the Texas market has been working has been taking us in a similar direction. Uh, but however we choose that direction from a policy perspective, we have to have enough time to implement it effectively. Well, and I guess what I would say is, um, and I don't want you to take this as the fact that I don't like renewable, because I do like renewable, but the clean, if, if you believe CO2 causes global warming, it's a global problem. And so we need to work with other countries to make sure that everyone is involved in it. And when, if you, if China, you know, is growing, we've, finally gotten a lot of our business back from China, a lot of our industrial and, and commercial business back from China, but, um, if, but they're putting up a power plant a week. And so no matter how much we reduce our CO2, if they keep emitting CO2, it's not going to make any difference. So it, it's a global issue that needs to be resolved. Bob, what would you do? Yeah, I, yeah, I think the 111D and the Hayes rules are just, are, are just artificially accelerating a, a path we were already on. Right. So it's just a matter of when. And I would say an alternative, put a price on carbon, carbon tax, let the markets figure it out. Uh, please yeah. join me in uh, thanking the panel for their contribution.